everyone, and welcome to the last episode of Season 6. We'll be taking a break over Christmas, and then we'll be back in the new year, God willing, for Season 7. How's your week been going? Jim, I heard good reports about your talk at Queen's CU last week. Well, well, the talk itself went fine, I think, but the opening, Ollie, was a complete disaster. <laughs> it's traditional when giving a talk on campus that the speaker has asked a series of utterly bizarre icebreaker questions. It's, I mean, it's an act of ritual humiliation that has required me to address over the years questions such as, if I had a superpower, what would it be? Or if I was a kitchen utensil, which one would I be? Yeah, that one, I had the kitchen utensil one. And to be honest, I was dumbstruck. I didn't know what to say to that. It's a, it's not easy. Yeah. I, well, I, I have said that I would be a sandwich, toasted sandwich maker. Okay. That is, and, and what, what was your justification? <laughs> that it seems like a good idea at the time, but it's rarely used. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Interesting. I I disagree, Jim. I don't. In fact, I don't want to name like I don't want to name which kitchen utensil I think you should be in case I offend you. But I'll have a think, and maybe coming into season seven, I'll I'll come up with an idea. Well, last week uh, I was asked the most ridiculous one of all. I was asked uh, if you were a potato, what type of potato would you be? Now, with hindsight, I can see it was actually quite a clever question. I mean, am I a mashed potato or a curly fries? You know, does my personality? Mm. To have the tough exterior of a jacket potato, that sort of thing. But unfortunately, I completely misunderstood the question. I thought I was being asked to choose between different brands of potato, right? <laughs> Rather than different potato dishes. If only she had said the word dish. But unfortunately, my brain froze in front of 300 people. So <laughs> I was desperately digging through my memory for different potato brands, you know, like Maris Piper or King Edwards or Royal Jersey. And I eventually settled. <laughs> on new cumber potatoes <laughs> on the grass that I live near cumber. I mean, it was the lamest, unfunniest response I could have given. And the bewildered expression on the poor girl's face was enough to wake me up in the middle of the night and scream into a pillow. I mean, it was an utter horror show, Ollie. Yeah, I do feel, I feel bad for the girl, <laughs> to be honest. Because, I mean, the depth behind that question is is apparent, German. You really, you blew it. You really did. did blow it. But I mean, yeah, the other one I had, I don't know if you've ever had which animal would you be, if you've had that one. No. That always stumps me. What did you say? I think I went dolphin or like something friendly because people love dolphins. I wanted a crowd pleaser, but you know, it's it's. I hard. couldn't hack that at all because I mean, people touch them. Well, yeah, but to be honest, them. you revealed recently that you are a budding conservationist and, you know, really into animals. So I thought that would be up your street, that kind of question. No, but I, I don't like people touching me. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. That's because I only like other people in principle. <laughs> yeah, I've come to realize that. I have come to realize that. Anyhow, anyhow, I mean, we'll have to, like, we should issue a formal apology to Queen CE uh, for Jim's poor yeah. response to the debate. Particularly question. poor Bethany, who was chairing on that night. If you're listening, Bethany, I apologize unreservedly. We are deeply sorry. Um, in this season, Jim, we've been doing something a little bit different to kind of our normal stuff. We've been discussing a number of books in the Bible and kind of asking the question, what's the big idea behind this book? Um, but I thought we should end the season by doing something a little bit different again. And that's picking up a more basic question that a number of our listeners have asked us to address. And that's, how should we go about studying the Bible? It's one thing to listen to a Bible teacher talk about a passage of scripture. But in our personal study, how should we go about making sense of it? Are there techniques that might help a young adult engage in more effective Bible study? 
Yeah, uh, many years ago, I remember a student admitting to me that she found personal Bible study really hard. She said, I just read the passage and go, oh, I don't know what to do after I've read it. So the question you're raising is a really, really important one. But unfortunately, there isn't a simple answer to it because the Bible is made up of different types of literature. I mean, just think of the differences between, I don't know, the story of David and Goliath or one of Paul's epistles and the book of Revelation. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, that makes sense. And a great deal of the Bible is made up of narrative. In other words, it's a collection of stories about people and events. So take the book of Genesis or the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in this conversation, we'll, we'll focus on the question, how should I study the narrative books of the Bible? And perhaps we can return to the other books like Paul's epistles in another episode. Okay. Well, when it comes to the narrative books, I think there are three simple techniques that any reader can use to engage with the text. And in order to earth this conversation, Ollie, I'm going to suggest that we take a case study. In other words, take a specific section from one of the Gospels so that we don't end up spouting theory. And the the passage I'd like us to dip into is from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Chapters 7 and 8 of Luke's Gospel form a literary unit. I'm not going to justify that in this. I'm just going to say that it does, okay? And those chapters contain... 10 stories that are all concerned with the idea of salvation. So I suggest we anchor our conversation in that section of Scripture. Okay, so let's imagine that a Christian is reading through Luke's Gospel, and they start into chapter 7. The first story we encounter there is about a Roman centurion. It's only 10 verses long, so I'll read it now. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, Don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So the the big question is, why did Luke include this story in his gospel? What would we not understand about salvation if he had left it out? So to answer that question, we need to begin by taking the narrative seriously. I mean, don't leap to some spiritualizing principle just yet. Take the story seriously as a story. Now, the technical term for this first technique is narrative analysis, but it's easier to understand it like this. Imagine the story as a stage play. So, uh, you know, think about uh, the situation where you're responsible for directing a school play about this incident. You must stick rigidly to the script, but what would the action look like on the stage? Who would come on and off stage? How would you summarize the flow of events? So I'd probably start with a delegation of Jewish leaders coming to Jesus, and they enter, if you like, from stage left. And they walk across to stage right to meet with Jesus. And the Lord agrees to go with them. And so the party moves back to stage left. 
But just as they reach center stage, a second delegation enters from stage left and make a different speech to Jesus. Then they exit stage left, returning to the centurion's house. A career as an acting director <laughs> awaits you. Uh, but actually, your stage directions have already thrown up a really interesting insight. Jesus never meets the centurion. In fact, the centurion is always off stage, if you like. He is represented by others. But the main thing we've worked out by looking at the scene as a stage play is that there are two delegations. And that is really curious. I mean, so let me just ask you, how would you summarize the first and the second delegation's pitch to to Jesus? So the first delegation tries to persuade Jesus to help the centurion because he's a good and worthy man. They say, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Okay, so that's the first delegation. So what about the second one? Then the second delegation makes a completely different argument. This time, the message from the centurion is, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Okay, so the centurion's first request was based on the idea that he merited Christ's help. The second request is based on completely the opposite idea. The second message begins with the words, I do not deserve. Now, that insight illustrates the power of narrative analysis. By taking the story seriously, we have unearthed a really interesting question. And it's this, what changed the centurion's mind? Now, there's no evidence in the text that anything happened to the centurion after the first delegation left. No one spoke to him, for example. So his change of mind must have come about just by thinking about his earlier action. Exactly. Now, the crucial point here is that the question we have just unearthed is only valuable if the text itself answers it. I mean, I have I have been at Bible studies where people have floated all sorts of weird and speculative ideas. You know, in this case, someone might say suggest that an early childhood trauma had given the centurion a fear of meeting strangers. Now, that sort of nonsense is a waste of time. So we need to examine the text carefully to see what might have caused the centurion to send this second delegation. The second delegation goes on to say, For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, the Lord's reaction to those words show us that they're really significant, because Jesus cites them as evidence of an amazing level of faith. I tell you, he says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. So that leaves us with a real puzzle. How does the centurion's insight into authority relate to the question of faith? Okay, well, let's imagine him sitting in his house just after the first delegation has left. He starts to think to himself, exactly how does Jesus heal people? How could someone, anyone, bring my servant back from the point of death? Well, how do I get things done around here? He asks himself. I I have authority. I tell one of my soldiers to go when he goes and another to come when he comes. I get things done because I have authority. So Jesus must have authority over sickness and death. And that thought process starts to give us an insight into the concept of faith. Faith is recognizing who Jesus actually is. Yes, and it also makes the second delegation completely plausible. Uh, Imagine the centurion suddenly uh, clapping his hand against his forehead. What have I just done, he asks himself. I've just sent a delegation to a man who has authority over life and death and sickness. I've clicked my fingers and summoned him as I might one of my soldiers on the basis of my own merit. People do that all the time to the Lord Jesus. Whenever they get into trouble, they expect him to come running. But they never stop to analyze who he must be if he is to be of any help to them. 
So having grasped something about Jesus' identity, the centurion hastily assembles this second delegation, and this time he doesn't go down the route of his own worthiness. I don't deserve that you do this, Jesus, he says in effect. I now know who you are. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. So Luke is making two big points about the nature of faith here. First, he teaches us that faith begins by appreciating who Jesus is. And secondly, faith is an approach to God that relies solely on God's mercy and goodness. Now, the point here is that we unearth those two really important insights by taking the story seriously as a story. Narrative analysis is a technique that uses the text, the whole text, and nothing but the text. It's not an excursion into speculative theories. It requires us to think about the flow of thought in the story. And often it's the little details in the story that unlock its meaning. Okay, so that's a really helpful study technique. Narrative analysis takes the story seriously as a story. So we can imagine the scene as a stage play and look at the movements of each character. We can summarize their speeches so that the thought flow in the story becomes clear. That's technique one, if you like. What's technique two then? Well, let's go back to our young adult who's sitting in a room reading through Luke's gospel. He's just read the story of the centurion and his servant, but now he comes across a different story, and that is found in verses 11 through 17 of chapter 7. I'll read those verses now. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now let's use this story to introduce the second tech study technique, which we're going to call uh, linking stories. I mean, have you ever asked yourself when you're reading through a biblical narrative, why does this story follow on from another story? Is there a connection between all those little stories that I'm reading? Uh, I'm going to let you into a secret, uh, a preacher's secret. Whenever you hear a preacher say, uh, this chapter contains a set of stories that are like a collection of paintings in an art gallery. If you hear anyone say that, then it almost certainly means that they have not found any coherent message in the passage. They just expect us to wander from one story to the next, uh, like looking at paintings in an art gallery. They're all beautiful and powerful pieces, but there is no progression of thought. It's just a random collection. Well, I'm going to suggest that the Bible is never random. So I'm going to be careful never to, to use that phrase then, Jim, when I'm preaching. I think I've probably used it on more than one occasion. <laughs> it's a sign of desperation. Luke seems to make an explicit link between the story of the widow of Nain and the previous one about the centurion, because he begins the second story with the phrase, soon after this. Yeah, it's an explicit link between the two stories, isn't it? So let's set the story of the centurion beside this story of the widow of Nain. I mean, what, what obvious features emerge, do you think? So to begin with, there's an obvious contrast between the two main characters. The centurion is this commanding authority figure. He's highly regarded in the community, a real leader who exercises power in society. And then the widow in the next story is the complete opposite to him. She's utterly helpless, someone with no resources and no social power. And in the culture of that day, 
she could possibly have starved to death. So Luke is obviously setting a contrast up, isn't he? Um, but there's another big difference between the two stories. In the first one, it's the centurion who always takes the initiative. Jesus in that story comes across as a humble servant who does what he's asked to do. That little phrase, so Jesus went with them. But in the story of the widow, it is Christ who takes the initiative. The poor woman never even asks for his help. It is Christ's compassion that drives the second story. His heart goes out to her, says the text. All she does is receive her son back as a gift. Yes, I can see the balance then that Luke is showing us here. But how does that balance affect us? What is his underlying point? Well, I would remind you that Christians have argued for centuries over how someone gets saved. If all we had to go on was the first story, then we would say that salvation comes about when we work it out for ourselves, when we work out who Jesus is, and then throw ourselves on his mercy. Now, there is a sense in which that is true, but it is dangerously imbalanced. The second story teaches us that salvation is Christ's initiative. We simply receive it as a gift. He provides it to us without us even asking him. So the balanced view of salvation is that it is a gift received by faith. Salvation is a gift. We don't have any resources of our own. But like all gifts, salvation must be received, and we receive it through faith. At the end of this section of Luke's Gospel, at the end of chapter 8, we find another pair of stories that are explicitly linked. In fact, one story is embedded within another story. The main story is about an influential Jewish man called Jairus, and his young daughter is terribly sick. So Jairus pleads with Jesus to come to his house to heal his daughter before she dies. But then the story gets interrupted by a completely different story about a woman who had an illness that she was embarrassed about, too embarrassed even to ask Jesus for healing. So she just touches the hem of Jesus' cloak and is miraculously healed. We can imagine the sheer relief that flooded through that poor woman's mind. She had spent all her resources with various quack doctors to find a cure, but now, at long last, she was cured, and no one would ever know. Her whole life had been consumed with keeping her medical condition a secret, because in that culture it would have caused her uh, to be excluded from polite society. But all that fear of embarrassment drains away. She has been healed, and so her secret is safe. But then, somewhat surprisingly, the Lord Jesus turns around and almost forces the woman to give a public testimony about her healing. And at first, this must have seemed like her greatest nightmare. It was just so embarrassing that Luke tells us she was trembling uh, as she comes forward. But, but the Lord is continuing to heal her here, this time not physically, but psychologically. She'd spent all her life trying to project the perfect image, trying to hide her secret away. But Christ changes the story of her life. And now she becomes the woman that Jesus healed. I think that's a story that many young women can relate to. There is this terrible fear at the root of a desire to project the perfect life. I think that fear lurks underneath the anxieties triggered by social media like Instagram. But Christ offers to change the story of your life. Instead of trying to project the perfect life, you can become the woman that Jesus healed. And that is a much better story. Absolutely. And while this is all going on, Jairus is being driven mad by anxiety because he has enough faith to believe that Jesus could heal his daughter, but not enough to believe that Jesus could raise her from the dead. So this delay must have been intolerable to him. And then a second delegation arrives on the scene and they tell Jairus that his daughter has died. Jesus then goes on to raise the little girl from the dead, but he uses the theological concept of falling asleep to describe her death so that people didn't actually regard the girl as having been raised from the dead. 
The obvious question here, Jim, is why the story of the woman touching the hem of the Lord's cloak uh, alongside the story of Jairus? I said earlier that it's the little details that can unlock the deeper meaning of Scripture. So let me ask you some simple textual questions. What age was Jairus' daughter when she died? Twelve, according to verse 42. And for how long had the woman been suffering from her medical condition? Twelve years, according to verse 43. That's very interesting. Think about Jairus' state of mind. He is reeling from the terrible news that his daughter has just died. He could remember how 12 years earlier he had held his newborn daughter in his arms, and now she had gone. But through the storm of those tormented thoughts in that man's brain, he hears a woman testifying. For 12 years, she had been in helpless distress, and now she has been healed by Jesus. 12 years. And it's at that point Christ turns to Jairus and says quietly, Don't be afraid. Just believe. So we can see that Christ was using the woman's testimony to hold up Jairus's faith. That poor embarrassed woman probably had no idea just how important her testimony was, but it held up Jairus's faith. So we've thought about narrative analysis and linking stories. What's the third study technique we can use to engage with Scripture? Well, there was method in our madness in talking about the story of Jairus, because I'm sure even as we talked, everyone began to notice some strange similarities between the pair of stories at the beginning of the section, the stories of the centurion and the widow of Nain, and the pair at the end, the stories of Jairus and the woman who touched Jesus' cloak. In both pairs, we have a commanding man and a helpless woman. We have the death and resurrection of a child. And we have two delegations in the story of the centurion and in the story of Jairus. So Luke is obviously up to something here. And that leads me to our final technique, The final technique we can use in studying biblical narrative is to contrast stories. So we analyze them individually. That was the first technique, narrative analysis. We link them uh, when they're contiguous. That's the second. But we can contrast stories that the author has designed to be set against each other. So what do we learn by setting the centurion against Jairus? Well, the obvious point is that in the story of the centurion, Jesus heals his servant at a distance. He just speaks the word and the man is healed. He never even visits the centurion's house. So why didn't he do that for Jairus' daughter? Why put the man through the trauma of his daughter's death and resurrection? Well, what Luke is doing here is giving us a balanced view of healing. I am so glad that Jesus can heal from a distance, because he's up in heaven just now. And we know that Jesus can just say the word, and a loved one who is sick can get well again. But we also know that sometimes he chooses not to do that. But on those occasions, when he doesn't, he does promise to come for us and raise our loved ones from the dead. So even those listeners who have prayed for a loved one to get better and have had to endure the moment when heaven says no, even in their grief they can know that one day Christ will come for them and will raise them up and he will restore them to their family as he did for Janice's daughter. And by setting the widow of Nain beside the woman who touched the Lord's cloak, we can learn that even when we have no resources, we can be used by the Lord to hold up the faith of others, simply by telling our story as the people that Jesus healed. So those are three simple study techniques that work for the narrative sections of the Bible. Uh, and that's most of it, of course. Okay, So there's narrative analysis, linking contiguous stories, and contrasting stories that the author has signaled to us. Thanks so much, Jim, and we really hope these techniques will help you as you seek to study the Bible in your own time. Uh, It's been a real pleasure to join you for this series, and we can't wait to be back again in the new year. 
hopefully there'll be a Christmas special in the interim. Um, But until then, uh, we wish you all a very happy Christmas and a wonderful end to 2022.